0: He was answering a question that I'd always wondered. When am I going to die? It was like, oh, it's now. Would you please welcome... Richard Hammond! BBC Top Gear presenter, Grand Tour Tour Tour. presenter. One of the biggest TV shows in history. It's fair to say that he has the best job in the world. (laughs) Be funny, quicker, angrier. Every compensatory measure that anybody who's diminutive in height has ever made... I've done. It's one of the reasons I'm a broadcaster now, for sure. There's a cost to that, though? Yeah.
1: What's the cost? (sighs) Was there a moment in the journey of Top Gear where you thought to yourself, this is big?
0: We went out in front of 60,000 people and just before we went out I said, lads, have three guys with less talent ever gone out in front of more people?
1: (laughs) Is there any guilt associated with your success? Yeah, there is. I want to prove I'm not a lucky idiot, so
0: I took some risky decisions.
1: Have you ever pondered that you might... Might have overdone
0: it. (laughs)
1: Richard Hammond has been seriously
0: injured in a car crash. They had called Mindy in. They said, I think, we're losing him. I had very bad post-traumatic amnesia if like a one-minute memory. Wow. I have to consciously write memories down and work hard to recall them. Do you worry about that? I do. The damage was done. So we
1: we'll should probably have a look find out. Are you scared to find out? Yeah. Richard, can we start by you giving me your, your context, your earliest context? Where? Wow. Uh, yeah, little fella, born in,
0: born in Birmingham. Uh, uh, Mum and dad, I'm the eldest of three brothers, um, quite a close knit family. My mum's dad worked in the car industry, he was a coach builder, so he was trained as a, a cabinet maker working with wood then he went into coach building which is in the old days when cars had a steel chassis and then they'd have an ash usually wooden frame over the top so that's where he started because his cabinet making skills were relevant but then he stayed within the car industry and finished up working at Jensen so cars were always they were always in my imagination they weren't like littering the drive because you know we had modest means So we had a Purple Marina Coupe as our our best car. Um, But I loved them. And that that grew into an obsession. Yeah, so schooled there until 15. uh, And then we moved north as a family. uh, And I went to Ripon Grammar School up in the north. And from there started working radio in 1988. That's a long time ago, isn't it?
1: (laughs) I wasn't alive back then. Yes, thank uh, you so
0: much. (laughs) We've already, dis- just as I was coming in, we mentioned that. The fact that I talk regularly to, like, full-grown adults, like, important people. You do lots of important stuff. And they are say, oh, yeah, I love your show. I used to watch it when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've done it
1: that long. Yeah, I know. You've led a, a life that is a real anomaly in many respects. You know, you've done some unbelievable things that people would just dream of doing. When, when, when you When I think back in my own life, I try and pinpoint the moments of influence whether it was a tv show i watched or something that happened for better or for worse like you said with your dad and his his um love for cars that made me end up living a life that was a little bit different when you think about those things and why you why you became an anomaly what are those anomalous influences. See, my favourite game is to look back and pretend they were all part
0: of some great plan and thread them all together but you can only do that in retrospect. Mm. For me, I guess, um, I always liked expression. I I wanted to be a painter or I wanted to draw really well. I loved art at school. I loved English. I loved writing. Um, But I loved photography when I was about ten. I improvised a little dark room under the stairs um, and would print my own black and white photographs. So I loved all of that but I was very much... Things like that were for other people. I thought it was a Birmingham thing. Brummies... I've always had to... But Brummies don't go, wow. Your average Brummie will never go, wow. They'll go, that's no. I mean, my Derek's got one like that, only bigger... It's just something we do. We don't, we don't profess to... Oh, we don't do that. And you kind of need to be able to do that to then think, that's what I might pursue. So a key moment am i making this up as being a key moment i don't know it feels like it when i was eight something like that nine um my dad's parents lived in western supermare so we'd go on holiday there which meant an endless drive from birmingham yes before the motorway went all the way so um i wasn't alive (laughs) yeah yeah that's going to be a theme um, we we went all the way down to Western Supermare to see them, and we were walking along the front there. There's a low sea wall on the beach down here on my right. And I saw there was a bit of a kerfuffle going on, and a little later on, we looked over the wall. Well, a lot of people gathered round and some people holding things. And in the middle, uh, it was Derek Griffiths, presenter, um, who was doing a piece to camera. And there was a camera there, and I remember thinking, that's amazing. He's been so animated and talking to that thing there's nobody there but he's talking to it. he's engaging with it and so sort of almost pulling a response out of it and I think that was I didn't leave that experience going that's it I'm going to be a television presenter because that was for other people just as being a photographer was for other people or an artist but I, it, it was there in my heart it, that's when I thought I'd love to, I bet
1: that feels amazing what was for you if that was for other people what did you think was for you I don't know. I guess
0: it... it I, I would never have imagined anything that I've done happening to me. <clears throat> None of it. Um, for me, was just... See, I'm that bit older than you, and possibly there's a generation that were raised by people who were glad to have got through the war and for whom what they really wanted was just a quiet life with nobody trying to kill them or their parents or their loved ones. So I I wonder if there's echoes of that, and I think that was maybe still echoing around Birmingham, that what you really wanted was just to make sure everything's okay, just to look at everybody's all right, we can have a family life and we can just progress without making a fuss, sticking your head over the parapet, because that brings risk. Um, So avoid that, don't. So I never would have... Dream. I'm not saying I was
1: directionless. Had I asked you at 18 or 16, what are you going to be when you grow up, what would you have replied, do you think?
0: 16, I'd have replied, I just want to ride my moped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd have wanted to be an artist, a great painter, but had taken no meaningful steps towards it at all because, again, lacked confidence. Um... Yeah, I, I was sort of... That would only have happened if a miracle had occurred. Do you know what I mean? If you have an option that you're not actually pursuing actively because you think that's not for me, but I'll keep it in there. Mm. Admittedly, what I'm saying is like I was hoping to win the lottery, but I wasn't doing the lottery. <laughs> but it it, it it feels like that. But by 18, I'd have said I want to be in radio and ultimately TV.
1: And that's what ends up happening, right? You go and study...
0: Yeah, well, I'd sat my O-levels under a different examination board and a different syllabus from that under which I'd studied. And then I I went into sixth form, but it reached a point eventually when the teaching staff thought it might be better if I went somewhere else, literally anywhere else, just not there, just don't be... They chucked me out, but not for anything heroic. I wasn't one of those, yes, I set fire to the janitor's car or something. I just was annoying I was an irritant, um, and I wasn't focusing, so they slung me out.
1: What do you mean, when you say annoying, you mean, oh, God, just winding the teachers up or something? Yeah,
0: trying to be funny. Um, Every compensatory measure that anybody who's diminutive in height has ever made, I've done. I only discovered recently that one of my dearest friends, Zog Ziegler, whom I've known for 30-odd years, um, he's 20 years older than me... In emails referring to me, to other people, he copied me into one by accident about ten years ago. He always calls me little Napoleon. (laughs) I didn't know he'd been doing that. He looked a bit shamefaced, but he still does. Yeah, I exhibited all of those traits. I was just irritating, honestly, really annoying. Do you know why? Uh, Because I was conscious of being, you know, smaller than everybody else and I wanted to be a bigger noise in the room. I wanted to sort of... Disrupt and do stuff, but I would, didn't want to be naughty. I had no. I still hate being in trouble. I hate being in trouble. Um, it bothers me, and it did then. But I, I was just honestly, I wouldn't have
1: put up with me. You know, there's like a stereotype that that if you're s- smaller in stature, that you're you're really in, you're you're insecure. That it becomes a, almost like a shame or an insecurity as a young man, and then you kind of you act against that by exhibiting certain behaviours. Was that true for you? Was there ever, like, a shame of being smaller?
0: It was... Yeah, I guess you don't really... It's not something you crave, although you know, I've spoken to lots of tall people who often wish and and had a similarly difficult time as a child because you're always sticking out of the crowd and you don't always want to and you can't make yourself small. Um, it genuinely doesn't trouble me now. I mean, the truth of the matter is often when I meet people for the first time and if they've seen me on the telly there's a moment and and they're disappointed because they're expecting to meet something that you'd hang on a Christmas tree or put on the mantelpiece but I'm actually what five, seven-ish so I'm fairly average really it's just that I consistently work with much taller people but it yeah it did drive me on as a kid and I, I do it's bullying I've never bleated about it but it is and it it influenced me greatly yeah yeah it it I overcompensated I felt I had to it's almost like you take that as a kid I mean Mm. you take that into the room with you anything that makes you different whatever that is you take that in the room with you and it's kind of you have to deal with it and you have to deal with it you have to compensate for it be funnier or be quicker or be angrier or noisier, or naughty. You have to somehow compensate for this thing, which is to do with, I guess, if you could bring that thing with you into a room and it was simply absorbed and it didn't matter, then you could be the person behind all of that. So, yeah, I think it did influence. It's one of the reasons I'm a broadcaster now, for sure. Really? Yeah, bound to be. Must be. Must be. I've often thought, really, if you're lucky enough... It depends. People seldom have careers now as broadcasters as i think of it because their personalities and that's a different game but i come from an era when it was a craft you know i, I, I spent a long time learning about how to address an audience through radio you never pluralize the audience you talk to people one-on-one um all sorts of things and those craft skills have gone and they've gone from tv there is that a bad or a good thing, I don't know if actually we're getting to see people genuinely as they are, if we're celebrating interesting personalities, rather than somebody who simply learned to craft, maybe that's better. But I I, I was pushed to do it, I think, in part by that. And I've often said that the worst people to pursue it, as in the worst people to deal with the trappings of success in the media, are by definition the same ones who are the only ones driven enough to achieve it because oh. they're compensating. So amen. that's why it can be damaging because only the man or woman who was so desperate for it will have hung on and endured sacrificing friends and time and spare time and sometimes dignity and whatever else in order to get there. And they're therefore the least able to deal with it when whatever it was that they craved is given them. But <laughs> they'd be better off solving the craving
1: removing the craving than feeding it that's my theory i said this to my girlfriend yesterday <laughs> Did in you? bed at 1am yeah you said the point about how people that strive to have the admiration let's call it mm-hmm. or the the success whatever the sort of external validation is maybe a broader way to kind of describe that are also the ones that once they get it Will struggle the most to deal with it, whether yeah. it's because of the the Lots. scrutiny that comes with it, or the or the you know the power that comes with it, yeah. or whatever that comes with it. And so, well, if you're that's driven... my exact point. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah, yeah then we agree?
0: Yeah. I, I think it's and it's not a. It's fairly obvious when you see it that way. I'm not against all of that. I'm not against you know we live in that world where people can project their personalities across all across the world. Um, that doesn't trouble me overly. The only thing that does trouble me is occasionally I'll meet a young person a kid and they'll say oh it's great i i love what you do i'd love to be famous and i'll always stop at that i always really why because you know it's it's a it's a byproduct of a fascinating and potentially rewarding job and and it can be important it can be powerful even but the fame itself is just it just means it's embarrassing standing on a train on your own because everybody's staring at you <laughs> that's all it means. I guess if you live in London and go out a lot, it might mean you can get a restaurant table. But you can only get that if you're and go, hi, I'm kind of a big deal the television. Can I have a table? Oh, okay, and then you feel
1: even worse when you can't. Were you aware that you were being driven by some, that's some kind of like insecurity throughout mm. that period? Or was it really in hindsight that you look back and go, ah?
0: Um, was I aware? Yeah, I think I was. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned to fight early on. I learned to punch above my weight, to make a noise, to be braver. If there's some idiot on his bicycle trying to jump over a, <laughs> some action man toys on a ramp, it would be me. Yeah, I knew. I knew. I was, I was a small kid just screaming, notice me, notice me, notice me. I think. I think. And, and the, the problem there, of course... A lot of us, don't we, will have traits that aren't always the best, but that are rooted in justifiable cause. But if your job then rewards it, if you are needily showing off... My mum used to stop showing off. Sorry. That was my childhood. Um, But if you're then rewarded for it, wait a minute, your brain is sort of remapped a little bit to go, oh... So that isn't a bad thing. I should pursue that because I literally am rewarded financially and people seem to like me. So I'll continue doing it. It's why my midlife crisis has lasted 20 years and it's still going on. I'm quite enjoying it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I um, am, you know, maybe 10, 20 episodes ago on this podcast, I I started because I'd heard similar themes in my guests that they were being... they were all misdescribing themselves as being dragged by an insecurity. And I was—I started to make this kind of distinction between being driven, which is maybe for intrinsic reasons or whatever, and then being dragged where there's some kind of void you're trying to fill or insecurity you're trying to, to mend or some validation you're seeking. And, you know, you're either in the front of the car driving down the motorway, or you're kind of on the end of it being dragged by this pursuit of like validation and how at some point in our lives we probably need to like take hold of the steering wheel and be conscious about the direction we're travelling in and not being dragged by the insecurity or the desire to be liked whatever it might be was there a point in your life where you're you're the thing driving you moved from being that that you know insecurity or that that pursuit to to show off and the validation it creates to being a little bit more conscious because i sometimes worry in myself but also in the conversations i have that if we don't at some point realize What's driving us? It might drive us to the wrong place. It might drag us to the wrong place, shall I say? Um, initially, I
0: don't know. I spent that much time thinking about it like that because, heck, it was work. If you're a freelancer in radio in 1988, 89, you go where the job is and you live in whatever bed so you've got to live in to do it because I love the job. And let's mm-hmm. not, I didn't, it, it wasn't at one long introspective naval gazing party it was this is really cool i really enjoy it and in those days i'd arrive at a new radio station and um if i was lucky be given the radio station car which was often a, quite a new car which was uh and dispatched in that with a your tape recorder which is a reel-to-reel quarter-inch tape tape recorder that to you is a steam train so like an ipod or something no It's about 20 years before the iPod. It is, honestly. It belongs in a museum, but that's what we used. So I'd be dispatched with that to go and do an interview with no mobile phone to hook up. But when I got there, I loved it. I still love harvesting people's thoughts and ideas and and sharing them via any medium. I mean, look at what we live in now. Look at what you're doing, what what we can do, what I do. Drive Tribe that I now run, that is about doing exactly that. And it's almost your generation, I guess, and you know the agencies that you run and the work that you do, you're that bit further than I am from, because I'm still closer to still being amazed. I used to have a fantasy when I was working radio to go and do interviews, again, with no mobile phone, so you had to pick up a phone with a curly wire and make the appointment, and you had to be on time because you couldn't just turn up and then... Oh, I'll call you when I get there. There were no mobile phones. It didn't exist. And there was no internet to research where you were going. So you'd all sat nav. So you took a paper map, navigated your way there, and you did your interview. You could link up live with the radio station, but through, like, a radio mask that you had to put up. Um, and then you'd go back. And I used to fantasise about... Imagine if I could just go anywhere and do live broadcasting. It's just... and. The other day we were having a meeting with the guys that work with me on Drive Tribe, and we were talking about a show. I'm not going to tell you because you're going to do it and you'll take it from me, but we've got no, a cracking idea for a little show we want to do on platform. <clears throat> and it involves, first of all, Lucy, one of the people in the team. She's going to go off and do this thing. And we can do it. We can link live. You think, well, what? Mm. Maybe those of my generation should keep hold of that amazement and just keep it going because it will be I mean to you that's of course you can
1: Mm.
0: I'm still a bit amazed by that is that a good thing is it useful Uh, I'm going to say yeah but I'm only saying yeah for romantic reasons because actually it makes no difference at all the fact is you can practically you can do what you can do so do it to good effect sitting there hopping up and down going oh it's amazing that we can do it probably doesn't help
1: hmm. what do you think better to be gratitude st- right there's a there's a level yeah. of gratitude in there which is oh. a healthy feeling
0: yes there is yeah. i'm grateful that we are able to do that i'm grateful that we live in a time when we can come up with an idea sitting in my bar and
1: having a meeting and then just do it mm. that's amazing and a younger generation or a generation that haven't been exposed to the change might not they just have an expectation that it happens so there's less gratitude involved in the fact yeah that it, is it made happening. them all
0: grow up like i did
1: exactly with no mobile phones and just a hoop and a stick to play with do you i i do sometimes ponder if um that world without the internet my analog world well it would be a much more enjoyable world for the human being to live in and it kind of links somewhat ah. back to what we were talking about earlier where if you think about the essence of what it is to be human, I don't think we're, mo- we're supposed to be exposed to this much information and this much sort of global connection um, in terms of, like, the bombardment of notifications and this constant stimulus which leaves you in that fight-or-flight state. Maybe yeah, but bit- the
0: drive to do that is quintessentially human and it's one of the reasons we proliferated the way we have, that spreading of gossip and sharing of information and sharing of um, mutually agreed standards be that industry showbiz gossip or religion or anything else. But sharing those is what's enabled us to work together in huge numbers. Otherwise, we would be in little little individual groups still under gathering. So it, it's been key. We have to have it. It was inevitable. I think it's run away a bit. I think the critical nature of gossip and sharing all of that, because we've developed this way of doing it, but maybe it'll decrease in import. Maybe we'll need... Bigger spikes in it to actually grab our attention, but I don't. I don't think we can't condemn it because we've pursued it. What's come out of us? We have all the options. That's what. So we need to look at what it will do for us. I think it'll water down. It'll dilute.
1: I wonder if the brain has evolved at the same pace as it.
0: Well, the bra- I mean, it can. It is. It is a, a limitlessly flexible sort of bucket of soup and electricity, isn't it? Really. When I, mean, I dented mine crashing into the ground at 320 miles an a Stupid boy. <clears throat> that was typical of me. I only did that because I'm a short bloke. That is short bloke all over. Anybody want to drive this rocket-powered dragster? Me, me, me! Will everybody be looking? Yeah, I'll do it. <clears throat> then it crashed. But, I, you know, I did damage mine, and there were all sorts of anomalies within it, ways in which it didn't work as it should. Emotional responses were all over the place. There were no big motor control issues, but some... Um, But it rewired, it fixes, and there's loads of instances of it doing that. So if the brain can recover and literally, physically reshape and and function post-physical trauma, then it can also... We could evolve. We could be evolving now. Will it be genetically encoded and passed down? So will a new generation following on from you evolve? Will they carry pre-coded that information to deal with our digital world? Well, physiological changes, no. But then as human beings, because we have to have the capacity, you might be born a Wall Street billionaire, um, a fisherman in an Amazonian village. The same essential ingredients have to do that. We have to have that limitless flexibility. So maybe that's why our brain will... Maybe it'll always retain that flexibility, which means, by definition, it can't evolve in a distinctive route. Because that's narrowing options. We're still born with this incredible capacity to be and do anything within a very broad range of things. And we need to hang on to that. I mean, a baby, all a baby giraffe has to do is endure a six foot drop when it's born and be able to run a few minutes later and you're away, that's it. Mm. We have to do a lot of other stuff.
1: I wonder. I, I, part of the reason I, I ask this question is because I'm trying to think about um, a lot of the things we're seeing with mental health and how it's, it, it appears that situational and environmental factors are causing, of the modern world are causing the brain to struggle in many ways um, at a fundamental level. Whether it's loneliness that's driving the brain to feel a sense of purposelessness or something, or whether it's the overstimulation which is causing anxiety and the brain is struggling to cope with that. Um, that's kind of why I was asking the question as to whether the brain is keeping up with the, the nature of the modern world. Because there seems to be a lot of symptoms that it isn't.
0: But there's only so many stimuli that can be received and registered via our various senses and organs into that lump in there. There's only so many things that... I I think you might attribute magical qualities to an analogue existence. And you can see why we would, because an analogue existence has a degree of... um, of definition that couldn't be achieved digitally because you're always limited whereas it's a bit like trying to explain science and the world using science trying to explain the universe using science it's only the languification of it it's not it isn't absolute these aren't the facts they're a version of facts that we can share between us and and sharing and Communicating is what we do, it's what defines us. So that's all it is. It's the languification of that that is. But it doesn't have the definition. It can't go down to a fine enough. It's it's still like trying to paint the Mona Lisa using Lego bricks. (laughs) It's not quite fine enough. But I think a digital world is even less fine. Because it, it's zeros and ones, it's absolute. And yes, it, in, in what we do, it's great. It returns empirical data on whether or not something is being approved of. If you are making a marketing film, as opposed to sticking your finger in the air and seeing which way the wind's blowing, and are people looking at that poster outside the bus station? Yes, but the poster outside the bus station in the analog world is, has a far finer level of of uh, of detail than I think you could do digitally. But are, are you Are you saying that? It's intrinsically bad that we're drifting towards a digital world and away from the analogue because the analogue contains something that... Because stimuli are stimuli. Are you, are you sti- yeah. If you can stimulate, you could replicate... We could honeycomb the entire world. You could be put into a pod yeah. into which you could be given sufficient physical, mental stimuli, which is only chemicals, yeah. to maintain what
1: is measurably a healthy human being. Would you be? I don't know. I guess I'm I'm asserting that, like, humans clearly have some fundamental needs, you know, shelter, connection, um, uh, I was going to say psychological safety, I'm not sure that's necessarily a a, a human need, but it's important. And some of those things seem to be being stripped away by the nature of the world we live in today, where, you know, in America, when asked how many people have you got to turn to in a time of crisis, the answer used to be three. I think it's the modal, modal answer or the medium answer is now zero. Theresa May appointed the first loneliness czar. They think um, loneliness is significantly worse than smoking 20 cigarettes a day, it reduces your life expectancy by 10 years. And I wonder whether the that's almost like a human response to something that's been stripped away from the way we live our lives over the last whatever. You know, like living in four white walls alone as a single bachelor, ordering my food using a glass screen, ordering, like dating using a piece of glass, stimulating myself potentially sexually using a piece of glass screen in my hand. And then the processed food that I'm eating, the sh- I'm just wondering, and then look, you know, the constant stimulation of this dopamine hit from this glass screen as well in my hand, that's keeping me awake up at night, hurting my sleep, and then keeping me in fight or flight because I'm nervous about something on this glass screen,
0: you know. But if that's the answer, what, what is the answer to that? Because we made it collectively as a species, yeah. we have gone that route. I mean, I'm not sort of absolutist, made the I'm not bomb. saying we've gone yeah. that way. Well, yeah, I'm not saying we've gone yeah. that way, we must continue doing that. It might yeah. well be that disruptors need to put their hand up and say, yeah, hey, we, Sure. Yeah. I mean like I, I I wanted to talk about the car because I believe that the car is sort of an expression of some of that. Mm. Because in that analogue world, which all right, I'm from <laughs> um you've got those needs. So you need shelter, I suppose, warmth, food, stimulation, supplies, mate. Once you've got beyond cave, the car comes to represent all of it. That's why it's important. That's why it very quickly became a symbol, because you've got shelter, but what are you going to do? Starve to death and die of loneliness and boredom at the back of your cave? No, you need to leave it and get that that you need. And something that can get you there first, to the kill, to the mate, to the resources, is powerful. That's what the car became. You're very passionate about the role of the car in society, aren't you? Yes, I am, because because of what it represents, uh, which is everything other than shelter. Um... Yeah, and here's me getting all poetic and romantic and dewy-eyed about the analogue world because I think something that moves you physically, corporally, from one place to another, that's powerful because I'm going there, I'm taking my person, my and the universe only exists for each of us in here, so I'm taking, therefore, the universe with me to wherever it is I'm going to do, whatever it is I'm going to do, and that makes it impossibly exciting. And for that reason, I don't think it'll ever go away. Top
1: gear. That really was a big hit. Yeah, it caught on, didn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it was remarkable. When I'd done car shows, I'd done radio for years, um, moved uh, to the South to get a job at Renault in the press office so I could get to know the editors of the car shows, which I duly did, one of whom, Pete Baker, saved me and gave me a job on Granada Men and Motors making little car shows. Um, and then eventually, after years and years and years of doing that, I auditioned for the
1: new Top Gear and got the job. When you got that job, did you... What were your expectations of of the role of the Well show? initially
0: I cried and opened really? a bottle of champagne in my while? Oh god, yeah, it was just it, was it. Well, I'd spend my whole life trying to do that, so it it had worked. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge moment. Um uh, but we just thought we'll make a car show. I remember the conversation in White City, BBC HQ. Um with most of us with was before James joined but the rest of us were all in place and weirdly some of the people we still work with now we were all in that room and we all said right these are the grand rules of Top Gear it's about the real world cars that people really buy no supercars no foreign travel we're only going to drive proper cars that people buy in this country and then that didn't last very long at all we realised eh. That's not what people wanted. Not what we wanted to make. We never made it with any science or calculation. We just made the best car show we could. And we were lucky. Things aligned. The world wanted that show. Three misshapen blokes talking about their passion. But I do think if you you'll have watched that pottery show. I don't care about pottery at all. But... Watching people who are so into it, you know, the, the one lovely chap cries when somebody does something, it's like, wow! Watching people engage with, indulge or share their passion is incredibly compelling, whether it's for making pottery or baking or dancing, it doesn't matter, or cars, it doesn't matter.
1: I want to know more about why. Like, why Why did people love it? You're, you're touching on some psychological elements there, but what is it? what is it doing for the viewer at home in terms of the... What is it giving them? Because it's not just cars.
0: Oh it? no, no, it was it was. God, we were still a car show, but well, we always used to say you don't have to be a car nerd to watch it. We do that for you. I think it was a means of escape, but through a relatable portal, because you could look at all of us three, and let's be honest, we're none of us. Brad Pitt, uh, we're none of us. Pretty good, anything really. Uh, you you could. I think people would always find they'd identify with one of the three of us. Am I the little, short, squeaky, brummy one or I the, the more graceful, long-haired, slightly fat one or the really big, fat, shouty one? Which one am I? Which one? And you'd fall into one of those camps. And so that would sort of take you along with us on whatever adventure we were going on. It's why we ended up making today the, the big trips, because that's what people liked, the proper escape. The one thing that troubles me, though, is about that that business about... The subjects being important, if you're going to make a TV show, a podcast, a piece of internet content, whatever, about something, the subject leads. It has to. It has to have the authenticity and integrity to it because we, the audience, will see when it doesn't. And it cars for some reason are always, if somebody's going to make a TV show or a piece of internet content about this, they say, right, we'll do this thing about cars, okay, and then they don't get anybody who knows about cars involved in making it. But you wouldn't do that if it was baking or dancing or cooking or sport or football. I mean, you wouldn't. You'd, you'd want that baked in because it's not so that you wrong-foot your consumers, your listeners, your viewers, or catch them out or show off that you know more than they do, but you can demonstrate, yeah, we, th- this is real. This is This, this is an authentic passion. And we always kept that right at the forefront. It wasn't big, but it was there. Even though what we were doing was ridiculous, often.
1: How much of it was um, scripted per se? I was w- I was watching some some clips earlier on, and I was there were such moments of brilliance. I was wondering, is, is that like a producer in their ear telling them to crack that joke or to like? say that to him or is that just them being comfortable enough to be the free the really
0: good bits are in the moment but I mean that's easy to guess isn't it you're, you're, you'll have said some killer funny or incredibly moving things in the moment that's when we do our best work all of us so we would always devise a broad trajectory for the whole thing if we're making a special it's expensive so we, we can't just oh we we'll just get to Mongolia and see if some stuff happens you've got to set something up yeah. but you know that's the minimum you're going to come back with um, and you know the best bits will be the unplanned bits, of course. Always.
1: Was there a moment in the, the journey of Top Gear where you went, where you thought to yourself, fucking hell this is really, what? This is this is big."
0: Oh, well, um, the uh, surprising moment was day one, studio one, series one, standing in Fault So this is two thousand two, very early, or maybe two thousand one. We filmed it I think can't remember long time ago, uh, standing on the stage. And, you know, I'd always watched Top Gear because I loved cars. Um, And I'd watch Jeremy on it because he's older than me and he was already doing it. And so as we were, it was recording one, they played in the Top Gear theme. And my instant response from inside was, oh, Top Gear's on, brilliant, oh, I'm on it. I better concentrate. Um, But, yeah, there were key moments once when we were driving three... um, cut price supercars that we'd bought and we pulled into a petrol station so this is early days and everybody came out running to see us and to talk about the cars and they sort of got that oh what are you boys doing what are you up to now and that's when we realized oh hang on we've created something here it's got a momentum of its own which is great
1: and it really did have a momentum of its own globally Mm
0: -hmm. no idea why honestly none of us have none of us have it was just made the best show we could, and next thing we know, we're walking out in front of thirty thousand people on stage in South Africa, or Sydney, or Hong Kong, or all around the world, doing the live stage shows with with people that loved the show. And we left. Why? We went out in front of sixty thousand people in the Polish National Stadium in Warsaw, and just before we went out on stage, I was with the lads backstage, and we have those earpieces and microphones, so you can only hear each other; otherwise, too much noise. And they are all, Wah, there's music playing. We are about to all drive out with a, some terrible stunts. I usually hadn't listened to the briefing, so there'd be a crash. And just before one out I said, lads, have three guys with less talent ever gone out in front of more
1: people? <laughs>
0: we thought, <laughs> no, that that's ever happened. No, listen, it was just a serendipitous lining up of a need for a slightly anarchic approach. Uh, I don't know, what happened? It was just a time
1: came and went when we fitted. But Someone asked me on an interview I did earlier on, it was Arcadia magazine, they said, is there any guilt associated with your success? And it's quite a curious question. Um, and it stunned me into a bit of a silence. Guilt, how, how does that question sit with you? Is there any guilt? Same thing, yeah, there is. It, uh, it's, it, guilt
0: is, it's slightly more refined than that. It's almost a why me? Hmm. It's, what? Um, yeah, because I'm still the little Birmingham lad Being a photographer wasn't for me. That's for other people, I can't do that. I can't actually be a photographer for real in the big world. And if somebody had said I could, you know, run various businesses and be a television presenter, and no, don't be daft. There's not guilt. It's being conscious of being the beneficiary of a great deal of luck. When I was younger, you go. I went through a phase of yeah, but I was you know luck often lands at two in the morning, and you're the only one still in the radio station editing. So that's where. No, it's just luck. It really is because I've got people who started in the same year as me, eighty eight, um, and I'm, I've got all the luck. I took some serendipitous decisions. I took some risky decisions. You know, I stepped away from my only ever job with a company car back into broadcasting and took a massive pay car. I took a massive pay hit when I joined Top Gear. Um, They were risks, but um, they're only risks if they're freely made, given that they were the product of whatever it was in me that was driving me to do what I was doing. It was already gonna happen. So I'm lucky because not only did that opportunity come along, but earlier in my life, something had happened and equipped me with the need to gain whatever it was, I stood a chance of gaining from taking that risk. So I took that risk. So it's still it's still luck. It's still luck. Somebody else could have had that same opportunity, but they hadn't been lucky enough on top of that to have been given that extra impetus to pursue it and
1: take that risk by something that happened earlier in their lives. So it's luck. And I've just been very lucky. That's a strange feeling, though, isn't it? To, yeah. to think that you got to live this life because of a set of factors that, You know, you're born in a certain place, in a certain way, and then that created that impetus you describe, and then the the dominoes that fell, and the decisions you chose to make because of all of those subsequent um, experiences lands you with this incredible job, with an incredible level of freedom. It's quite quite can be quite as you say a why me like feeling.
0: Yeah, is it guilt? It kind of is. It tastes slightly differently, but it is sort of. Is it embarrassment? Is it slightly embarrassing? Is that why having, God, accidentally stepped into so many luck traps, um, I'm now, you know, running my my businesses and um, because that's something i feel I can say, no, I did that. That wasn't just lucky, I made that happen by consciously taking decisions, by thinking about it. Maybe, don't know, but then I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to do that, which I would never have had. So it's all, the whole experiment of my life has been skewed entirely by those key elements of luck at those key stages. But, But we all have those. We're lucky to be alive, and it's easy to say that and it sounds trite and nonsensical, but we are. And for each one of us to experience our own individual perception of the universe, to live this Experience it is so phenomenally lucky. So many millions and billions of things have to not just have happened but continue happening for that to be possible. That whether or not, whilst experiencing this miracle of self awareness in and of the universe, we also get to go on the telly driving about in a car or not is kind of irrelevant at the end. This having this conversation, being aware of having loved ones, being aware of yourself in the world, being aware of the world, all of that. That's the amazing stuff. The rest is just stuff. And that's easy to say for me because I'm not that worried about my next phone bill. It's a lot harder if you are, I get that. And I'm not, I'm not, not failing to be aware of that. And right now for a lot of people, whether or not they get to do a job on TV driving around in cars or whether or not they get to, to look at the universe and talk about the idea of God and love existing or not with their mates is kind of less important than they've just had to have a prepaid meter fitted for their gas. So the answer to that, guilt, embarrassment, I think carry it with you, maybe learn from it, look up from it occasionally, think how can I, what can I, can kind it of make me better able to connect with people? That Just that would be useful.
1: What's your opinion of yourself? You know, when you what's the, this is a, a really interesting question. But um, you said something which which kind of brought me to this question about this idea that maybe the building these businesses that you have now is another pursuit of like p- proving one is worthy. I guess because because of
0: uh, it's almost I want to prove I'm not a lucky idiot.
1: Um, so what does that say? That's why I said, what's your opinion of yourself? Oh,
0: it's probably I guess for that reason, as I've probably just revealed, it's probably quite low, isn't it? Um, I'm very conscious of being very lucky I think uh, to describe myself
1: um, What does the voice in Richard's head say Richard is who he is what he is would
0: like to be more fair about life I don't, I, that troubles me I think fairness and I'm aware it's desperately unfair um, but also yeah as as with a lot of us I'm fairly um, anxious inside need Need to be loved. Same. Desperately. um, Need to be reassured. And one of the dangers, I mean, I I should imagine you'll find this given, you know, you're you're young and enjoying a stellar career in what are archetypal positions of power and authority. So it's very likely that the world will look at you and think, well, he's the last one that needs a bit of reassurance and a chuck on the shoulder and someone to say, oh, you're doing really well, well done. Whereas actually, you do. Um, And I certainly find that that's something that I I need. I need someone to acknowledge that um, things are going well and you're taking advantage of whatever luck comes your way. And, you know, I, I love building my businesses up because I love the fact that I'm conscious. That's other people's jobs. This is their story I'm helping build. If they get working with me at 24, even if they only work with me for five years... When they, they'll remember that forever like I remember the first radio stations I worked at this is their history we're taking a part in writing so I'm conscious of that but at the same time sometimes you just need someone to ruffle your hair and go well done hmm. and that would be nice yeah I'm not asking you to ruffle my hair just because no, yeah.
1: I mean, it's slightly awkward
0: <laughs> Cheers, but, you
1: know. no, it's, it's, I guess it's quite curious because someone would someone uh, looking in might think well you know Richard's done so much in his life. He must just be absolutely satisfied, and he must be com, com, feel comple- completely complete, and like there's nothing more else to prove or to. But the the business point you made sounds like you feel like you have something to prove there.
0: Yeah, and I'm 53. I've got another.
1: I've got another go round in me yet.
0: Yeah. I'd like to have. It, I don't know when you're thinking about time off. If you've ever got time off coming out, which I shouldn't imagine is very often, and I don't know it isn't for me either, but when it is, I always think, yeah, God, I'd love to just take a week and wake up every day and just go for a run and then maybe ride an old motorcycle and just really, really revel in. No, I don't. I'm immediately, I'm, I am hideously addicted to work, but that's hardly surprising given that work has also been self-verification and it, it's it's the reward that I probably shouldn't have had. So, obviously, I'm addicted to that.
1: There's a cost Wouldn't in that, be? though, right?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, if you're not careful. What's Absolutely. the cost? Uh, your relationships. Um, you know, my two daughters. That I've made excuses over the years, often i sitting in a rainforest filming and there'd be a camera operator and maybe it's a bloke and he's just had his first children and he's away from home and he's upset and I've said yeah but you've got to remember you know you're their first example of how to lead a life you can see where this is going and you know you're going to come back with amazing stories and they're going to look and think wow well if he can pursue his dreams and do that I can pursue mine and you'll inspire them yeah but they also just would quite like you to be around that's a fact Um, yeah I've been able to provide well for my girls Izzy and Willow um, I wish I'd been there more. Of course I do. But if I'd been there more, we wouldn't have been where we were. I can Our life would be so different because I've worked sort of in and out of London for 25 years and we've lived deliberately out of London. They've been raised in Herefordshire. That's their county. That's where they belong. My eldest, I bumped into her in London. This week she popped into the flat and she'd just been out in a pub in Fulham and pretty much everybody in there was from her county of Herefordshire and she knew them all and that's important that she, she can drift around London and know people or she can drift around her home county and the same for Willow and that's that's important for them they've got a bigger view of the world but they still have a home to go to and always shall have
1: Has it ever Have you ever pondered that you might Because I'm a workaholic too. I've overdone it. No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, but basically, I'm definitely addicted to work. And sometimes, and like just still the pursuit of like building and creating things Mm. and, you know, success. And I I sometimes ponder in certain moments, it'll just catch me that this isn't what it's all about. And that I'm like missing the point. And going back to my point earlier, I'm being dragged by a need for validation. Whereas I'm going to get to my deathbed, be laying there and go... So I just wish I'd just gone and hang out on a mountain with my partner in Peru a little bit more and been there, you know, for my kids um, and my dog. This, yes, but you didn't. And there's no magic in this. It,
0: it, it's simply what happens is what happens. And that's the way you've gone and the way you're collected experience. If you imagine you are the sort of front of a tsunami of stuff and that's the way it's taken you, that's the way it's taken you. There's good and there's bad within it. I, I don't... I never feel actual solid regret... Ever, because that's the way it went so I just don't feel it good and bad I'm not saying this is a good quality but I just don't feel it and not because I engineer it out of myself I simply don't feel it because that's, that's the way I've gone it also helps you sort of live now which is that's a huge part of the answer you could continue being driven as you are by work for the rest of your life if you're able to be you know mindfully present and actually experience it then great all of that will come into it
1: not a very good driver, me. 36 years old, 2006, I believe. Yeah. Um, take me to that day. Well, um, we'd had a discussion in the office,
0: and I have told this story before, and, and some people, you might be bored of it, sorry. Um, Andy Wilman, the editor, had said he'd got this chance for this car to be driven, and I'd, I'd gone into the office saying, Look, I just want to go really fast. What's the fastest we can go? It's that dumb an idea. They came up with this car, and I went to drive it, and I turned up on the day, um, did numerous runs in the thing. Uh, It was pretty basic and crude, really quite fast, especially when you lit the afterburner. Jet propelled dragster. I didn't have a speedo in the car because they knew I'd be chasing speeds, and that would be dangerous. So there was no speedo. I didn't know how fast I was going until after the event. Um, You stopped it. To to, to stop it from high speed, I had to pull parachute cord, to stop the parachute came out and stopped it uh and i'd done all the day's runs and the director came over and said rich we've got i've got permission for one last run oh brilliant right um we were happy with how it's gone but let's get one more bag of shots and um i was aware something had happened uh I, all i recall is a sense of oh no um, foot going towards a brake and realised I was doing three... I didn't know, it, but I was doing 300, just shy of 320 miles an hour, so brakes are not really doing anything. Um, the car, what had happened is the front tyre had delaminated and blown. The car had skewed right and was going off the road, but it was still doing 290 miles an hour as it started to roll. I'd pulled the lever for the parachute, which was all that mattered to me when I finally, you know, weeks or months later, became aware of what was happening. I needed to know had I done that, because I looked at my children and thought if I've nearly denied you a father for the rest of your lives because I'm an idiot and I did the wrong thing, I wouldn't forgive myself, but I, I did do the right thing, so it just, it was never going to stop it. Uh, so then it went over, and it, it rolled, and as it went over, I knew, you know, there's no roof, just a roll bar. I didn't know how fast I was going, but I knew it was fast. Um, And I just thought, well, I'm going to die now. But it wasn't. Again, I'm I'm on record as saying this, and I don't want to go on about it, because I get self-conscious. I don't want anybody to think, oh, stop going on about that, and I'm not. But if, if you are interested, I found it interesting that there was no fear associated with that. There was no, don't know. There was genuinely, it was answering a question that kind of at the back of my mind I'd always wondered, and I think a lot of us do, all of us. When am I going to die? How? Why? And it was like, oh, it's now. That's the answer. That's the next thing to do. That was it. And then I wasn't conscious again until in hospital. And I was conscious, apparently, when they got to the car, but of no recollection, because the damage was done. Brain, decelerative, sloshing forward, so frontal lobe, bleed. Because just decelerating upside down, <laughs> using my head as a brake,
1: um, it, it isn't good for you. Have you heard the story about what was going on in your... Your family at that time, well mm. while you were unconscious in hospital, How, uh, who called Mindy your wife?
0: Yeah Mindy was called. Um, she was on the road. she was called by uh, Wilman. They all spoke. It was hard, my daughters were young, um, and for them to grasp it was pretty pretty difficult. Um, yeah, it's disruptive, it's horrible, and it's hard. In my memories are, are all over the place anyway because I had very bad um, post-traumatic amnesia for weeks, like a one-minute memory, which Mindy, my wife, always says I was the nicest I've ever been. I was lovely, apparently. I was perfectly happy, which does make me and has made me think often since that you know I've got a friend who's... We all have friends, perhaps, or or ourselves, whose parents are, through whatever degenerative form of, of illness losing memories um, and I always say to him is she happy yeah fine if I go to see them yes, she'll come into the pub to see me three or four times and he's equally happy each time that's alright doesn't matter um, and I was perfectly happy reading the same newspaper every single day several times a day I just it was by my bed I just pick it up and oh brilliant I'd sit down and read it put it down a minute later gone until Mindy took it away because she was sick of seeing me read it, but it was it was more distressing. And and really, the message there is yeah, as if it's if somebody is in that confused state of whatever variety and for whatever reason, if they're happy, they're happy. Then you all you've got to do is cope to support them in that happiness. It doesn't matter if they can't remember who you are, what anything is. If they're happy, they're happy, and that's that.
1: And I was. When you are in that coma, I, I, I watched the video you produced about your um, incredibly powerful video about your morphine dream mm. and uh, the crooked tree mm. on the hill. Is that, is that true? That mm. there was a morphine? You, you, a morph- yeah, I
0: was in a... I was being held in coma because brain was expanding post-crash, so it was, they were holding me in coma, but it was looking very, very bad, and um, they had called Mindy in. Um. And they said, I think we, we're losing him. And I could do. She said, is there anything I can do? Not really. Try anything. Can I shout? Yeah. So she roared and shouted at me, don't you dare. I'm really quite sweary and cross. Why,
1: why did she do that?
0: Because she was cross. She didn't want me to die. I think there's lots of people who've done that. I think I'd do that. But when all else is tried and failed, if somebody is lying there, yeah, last resort don't you dare because you know she wanted me around I think we'd all do that it's not just a movie trope you can you could you are calling to somebody and I think we know in our heart of hearts we do have a great deal of independence in terms of what happens to us our mind is a powerful thing um, mind and body are one a chiropractor friend of mine chiropractor, he'll kill me for that osteopath friend of mine, Steve, sorry Steve Um, osteopath, very well read man and we were talking about mind and body as one um, and about you know bringing, uh, I I said something about bringing mind and body to work together and and all together and he said well yeah well it is all one because it's never been apart oh yeah your body and mind have never existed separately they've only ever existed as one and one needs the other and compliments and one is the other um, which is why if in that coma state and it's only an altered state of consciousness i'm not dead um i picked up on the emotion from mindy the anger and thought I that's <laughs> so the dream the dream was honestly all going to be in trouble now it's not funny anymore it's a very distinctive fleet flavor of You know when you're feeling you're being a bit naughty and you're being cheeky and you're getting... And then you realize, oh, no, I really am in trouble. And that's when she was really roaring and shouting. And yes, our mind can do an awful lot with our bodies. There's enough evidence of that over the years.
1: Your mind took you to your favourite place.
0: Mm. Which gives me immense comfort. Because it will do that eventually anyway. I know that's where I'll go. And given that at the moment of... of the body shutting down, of it stopping to do all the things that it does. You're no longer tied by all those, by time, not biological rhythms, lunar rhythms, none of those matter. You're not beholden to them anymore, which is a kind of eternity. So if my last thought had been walking around that tree in... I was up there uh, two weeks ago. The Lincoln Street? Yeah, went to the same tree. Um my mind takes me around there and that thought echoes for all of eternity as far as i'm concerned and really the universe only exists as far as i'm concerned or you're concerned it's only your perception of it and if that last moment is no longer constrained by worrying about heartbeats or cycling of the seasons it's kind of an eternity isn't it and i wouldn't mind hanging around by that tree forever
1: what was happening in that dream? So you, you, were, you were in a coma and you, you have the sort of a morphine-induced dream where you're walking up a hill. Yeah, I
0: was walking up the hill towards a tree and I was grew increasingly conscious that, oh, I'm going to be in trouble for carrying on. No, no, I'm going to carry on. I just want to press on. And then as I reached the tree, it was a very clear, oh, no, I really am going to be in trouble. i better go back. And that's the point. Um, I, I just related that story as a unit to Mindy and it was very clear when I was brought out of coma shortly after and that's when it had happened. I mean, it could be a story. Don't forget, your brain fills in things after the fact. A sense of recollection is all you need for something to be in the past. It doesn't have to actually be in the past. But I've, I've retained, I've, I've, I've gained immense comfort from it. I find it very comforting and warming to think. So I will continue to
1: think it. Why is it comforting and warming to to think? Because
0: um, I think the question of what happens, you know, since we are aware of our own mortality, we're aware of the world, and we're aware that it's quite nice being here to be aware of it. Um, and if that's one possible
1: resolution, one possible that might be where it goes, that's all right for me. It's not the not the first time um, you had a car crash. Well, no, no it, nor, it, nor the last. It, yeah, I've yeah, had a lot.
0: Yes, I went off a hill in Switzerland. Yeah, that was just, again, idiocy. Failed to break at the finish line, went off. I did think I was dying on that one.
1: After that first major crash, the one mm-hmm. where you were going three hundred 319-odd miles an hour, um, did your risk appetite change? Um, kind
0: of no, because... It was always assessed as risk. I knew there was risk. And we had done everything we could mitigate against that. You know, the, the air ambulance came. I was saved. Um, no. It has done more latterly, but that's because I'm getting older, I think. Um, no, it didn't really radically change it. But so. you,
1: you came remarkably close to your two young girls not having a father. Mm. Does the, and And getting close to that reality must leave some kind of perspective change or some kind of it would certainly make me think about the prospect um, and maybe start planning differently or
0: um, it possibly did that but then getting older does that passing 40 passing 50 does that it's in line with everything else that's ever happened in my life it doesn't really stand out massively it did for a while Mm. But it doesn't stand out as a particularly that's or we'll hang everything on that because there's also passing 40. There's there's all those other milestones that we all have and processes that we go through and subtle and not so subtle shifts in our priorities, needs. That happens. It's just, that's just woven into the fabric of my
1: life and it's just one couple of stitches in it. After the crash, um, you experienced depression.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was told... Mindy was told by the doctors that a frontal lobe brain injury would possibly lead to me having a greater propensity for obsession, compulsion, depression, paranoia. Mindy left a pause, my wife, and just, mm, you didn't meet him before the crush, did you? <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> Which is quite funny, to be <laughs> fair. It's quite a good line. Um, yeah, I think I did suffer a bit. I'd, I'd suffered all of those things to a degree, Yeah. In so much as I became aware of them as a thing because I could feel them from the inside and see through them to the outside. So, yeah, I was aware of them. All of those things, obsession, compulsion, paranoia, yeah. Depression? Yeah.
1: What was what were the symptoms of that that made you realise that it was a reality for you? How, um, how were you different or what did you feel?
0: Some of them were really weird moments Like, and I still get an echo of it. I remember... Having been institutionalised for a long time in hospitals and and actually in recovery, when I thought I was free, I wasn't really. I was still being monitored and I was still being carefully guided. But when I was really free, I would have, you know, I'd be coming into London to do something, and I could open the wardrobe door and just look at all the shirts and just trying to work out. Oh, it was too much. Choice was a problem. I found choice really difficult for quite a long time. But also, I mean, feeling your emotions derailed or interfered with as a result of what, are, what is only a neurochemical imbalance. That's all we're talking about. It's just chemicals and electricity. I was walking across my drive of my house and I felt this sudden, welling upsurge of love in my chest. Well, what's that? This is not that long out of, Oh, I was still on the road to recovery, I suppose. And eventually I identified it. I'd walked past my old Land Rover, which I do love, but only because I quite like it. It's an old Land Rover. But it just triggered this absolutely... I thought, oh, lie Um It made me think, you know, if emotions can be that profoundly affected by what was just a mix-up of chemicals and electricity in my head, then I am more aware of... I don't listen to my emotions too closely if I'm very, very tired. Or if I've had a big night out with the boys the night before, if I've drunk red wine i do not tune in to see what i think about anything because it's irrelevant for a day um those are the rules i've been quite lucky for that reason that i've I've had that slightly more objective look at my own self On my, that road my to emotional rec- self and myself
1: on that road to recovery what was was there a hardest day where you look back and go that was the, the most challenging for myself and mindy and
0: Oh, there were loads. So anger was. There was. I was angry for a while, not really? massively, but anger is a problem in people recovering from brain injury. The weirdest thing, though, I've chatted to so many people who've recovered from acquired brain injury, acquired in so many different ways—from being shot to falling off a ladder to a car crash, whatever—and um, the similarities are astonishing in the road to recovery. Really, are the confusions, the weaknesses the slight it's not guilt i mean I, I wanted a t-shirt that on the front said i'm okay stop asking and on the back that said i'm still poorly you know because you it's it's, that, it's if you run for a bus well, a while since you ran for a bus but if one were to run for a bus and you twist your ankle and you sort of carry on running on the i'm all right they're fine
1: yep yep
0: it's a bit like that with what i'd done but of course what i'd injured was every, was me where i am and how I see where I am. There's a horrible circularity to that type of injury, and I, have a, I had a close friend who, again, was similarly injured, falling off a horse, because he's an idiot. Um, and there are, again, massive similarities. There a more different man you couldn't imagine. He has dignity, status, gravitas, great family, everything I'm not. But his experience of recovery very, very similar. Are
1: there any remnants of the accident? In in, in terms of injuries or
0: probably, but there's probably remnants of everything that's happened to you in your life and everything that's happened to me in mine.
1: Are you aware of any? Is Mindy aware of any? No,
0: um, I worry. I do worry about my memory because it's not brilliant. My working memory is very large. My sort of processing memory in the moment, so I can still read a page, page of script and deliver it. But my longer term, not brilliant. I have to consciously write memories down and work hard to recall them sometimes. Now, that might be because I'm 50. It might be or 53. It might be because I'm working a lot and I'm tired. It might be the onset of something else. Do you worry about that? Yeah. Mm. I do. I do. I should probably have a look, find out. Probably should. Um, Are you scared to find out? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, there was a bleed on the front. It could mean there's an increased risk. I don't know. I need to find out. I've I've just... I have been too scared to do it, but I do need to... I need to... um, I need to do it. Weirdly, on the way here, I had to stop off um, for a medical. When you're doing a production, you'll know you have to have a medical, which always has Mm -hmm. been involved in any accidents. (laughs) can I have another piece of paper please I'm still going Um, very nice doctor and and at the end I said yeah I should definitely um, I need to put myself in for one of those midlife MOTs to see if everything's okay and I wanted to say and to check there's nothing going awry up here but I I, I chickened out didn't I I probably need an MRI scan but at 53 you, you know, your memory does start to get a bit they call it lost keys syndrome, the doctors did when I first came home from brain injury. And they have it with a lot of patients because, you know, they would lose their keys and go into an absolute flat tailspin panic. Oh no, I've lost my keys. It's brain No, you've just lost your keys. It happens. I am quite forgetful. I'm generally not paying attention, generally thinking about something else, the next thing. And therefore I do drop the ball. I forget stuff. I lose stuff. I forget keys. But that's just that's just me. That's not a function
1: of something going wrong how I am. Isn't it such a peculiar thing that humans will avoid finding out something if they think there's potentially mm. bad news on the end of it? I was reading some, I think some crazy study I was reading about over Christmas while I was writing um, about how if someone is diagnosed with breast cancer at work um, and they're in close proximity to you, you're less likely to go and get a checkup
0: Really? So, yeah. Which was, is uh, counter to what we would you imagine would assu- was the You'd game. assume, but yeah. it's
1: this avoidance of discomfort, the yeah. psychological discomfort associated with finding out bad news. And I um, I had a procrastination expert on the podcast once upon a time, and he said, whenever you're procrastinating on something, it's because there's some sort of psychological discomfort associated with the activity, an essay you don't feel competent about, so you end up just doing the dishes all day, or whatever it might be. So when you're procrastinating, you've got to ask yourself that question, what is the psychological discomfort here that I'm trying to avoid? So I'm asking you, Richard, what is the psychological discomfort you're trying to avoid and why?
0: Yeah, quite simply, facing something I wouldn't want to face. It's my own doom, it's all that. It, it's, um, I would find it very difficult to talk to my family and say, right, this is what's coming. I know I'd be all right, as I've said, if you're in a confused state, well, it doesn't bother you. But I'd feel bad putting that on them i want them to have a future full of of hope and clarity and energy and vigor and potential and fun and i don't want to interrupt that that's heavy yeah I'm but in for life laugh, is there isn't it you? blimey
1: <laughs> <gasps> it's interesting uh, you know th- this conversation about like health anxiety um i think it's one worth having and trying to get to a solution on because whether it's that or whether it's a lump i feel somewhere or whether it's a testicle that's a bit of a strange shape or whatever it might be that we do a lot of us live with this health anxiety of like if i just ignore it then uh it's not not a thing but then obviously ignoring it with many ailments causes it to be a thing yeah
0: but it's not surprising that we don't want to face it
1: surely not it's, it's. I, mean, I don't logic think would that say...
0: requires a procrastination expert who I did hear and I have heard him on, on, on the radio as well <laughs> and I always laugh about whether when
1: it turns up,
0: obviously. Um, the science of procrastination. But I don't think it requires that to realise, of course we don't want to know. We're aware of ourselves, we're aware of the fact that we're aware of the world and we enjoy that process. Daffodil doesn't have to stand around worrying about being a daffodil, it just is a daffodil. I think as you get older, you can make that process easier. I do find, you know, practicing a bit of mindfulness or thinking about things, asking about things, talking about things can make it easier. And you don't have to imagine a world without you in because you won't be in it. So you are only in your world for as long as you're in it. And that's eternity as far as you're concerned.
1: Have you spoken to Mindy about that anxiety regarding your health? Yeah, So it's not an elephant in the room? No, no, no. And she's pushed you to go get checked, hasn't yeah, she? Yeah, probably should. Yeah. I will. Yeah. If anything, it does demonstrate that we are much more emotional and lo- a lot less logical than we think we are. You know, because the logical decision would be, I have a lump, <laughs> I should go get it checked. But the, yes. the humans tend to go... I mean, they often just Google it and convince themselves they have something even worse, or they just avoid. avoid but also, avoid.
0: I mean, you don't want to show weakness and that again is perfectly normal. My my my, well, both my daughters and my wife, they're all into horses. But my youngest daughter Willow, her horse was was unwell. And she point she pointed out to me that they have evolved to be incredibly good at masking pain and discomfort because they're a herd animal. If they're not in the herd, they die. So they need to hide it. They need to, yeah, I'm just one of the lads, here I am, I'm fine. Yeah, I'll run with you over there. And they will do, because that's their only chance of survival. The moment they say, oh, I'm feeling a bit crooked, actually, so I might stay here.
1: I'm not saying we're horses. Mm. No, but it's a great analogy, and one I think I can relate to. Mm. You know, being a CEO and always being the leader. Yeah,
0: you've got, you've got, to, you've got to be, I'm oh, fine, I'm fine.
1: Yeah. Mm. What have you masked?
0: Oh god um oh uh, insecurity uh, not being sure of the way forwards also simply tiredness but I quite enjoy that I enjoy being up first it's dumb but I like it you know if I've got people if we are all away with work and we're all staying together I like to be up first go for a run partly to signal to myself Rich, you're more important than all of this. And that's important. And partly to signal to them that, no, young, don't worry, I've got this. I've not only got this, I've got this before I've got this. So we'll be fine.
1: What, well, um, like that injured horse analogy, is there anything that you've masked that you've masked because you'd think it would be a weakness? I know I certainly have. I reflect on it, especially in my career when I was younger. When I was struggling, I would not, I wouldn't tell a person because I did, couldn't believe that a CEO and a man could possibly um, express that. So, uh... But that's different
0: now, surely. I think it is far easier. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the patriarchal society and all the stereotypes and tropes contained within it have done just as much damage to men in many ways, mm. different damage. But that inability to share, that inability to show, I think that has changed or is changing. Though I have to be very careful here because I live in... The frightfully nice middle class bubbler And I've fallen foul of this before Because I live in a very happy world Where there is no In my little world There is no yeah. racism, homophobia, sexism Bullying It's nice mm. And then it's easy to forget And then you say things based on that mm. And then you look out at the broader world And realise, oh hang on a minute That really isn't doing much for the situation Of somebody living here or coping mm. with that So, But I think on the whole It's easier now to share things
1: was there a point where you you've you can recall opening up and the and the positive consequence of opening up in a way that you maybe haven't before because i can think of times where for the first time ever i've just said to my partner look i got to tell you something this is how i'm feeling about this and old steve never would have done that he would have been too too much of a tough guy would have seen it as a, just a tremendous weakness i i can't
0: remember when that happened i know i mean i'm off up to the lake district this weekend and I will see Les, my oldest mate, is a shepherd up there, an AED who runs the bridge, and my two brothers are coming with me. And we're going to have a sort of supper on the Saturday evening. But we're going to cook, and it is the most natural thing in the world. For that's five, four very disparate people with very disparate jobs: as a head teacher, a stockbroker, a television presenter, a businessman, a man running a hotel, and a shepherd. But we will. We'll share things very happily. And it it feels the most natural thing in the world. It doesn't feel like, oh, no, let's be really serious and let's share our innermost feelings and let's be supportive and not... No, we will do. just, And it can be knockabout. It doesn't have to be artificially gentle and and all on a bed of cotton wool. We can still take the pace, we can still have a laugh, but we are doing it with love. We are. We need that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Very definitely. Men especially. Men
0: more so because they're useless at it and realising that these things have value and it's OK. And it doesn't mean you have to turn into something you don't want to turn into or change you as a person. I have really rugged chats with... Oh, my mate's from forces. Often soldiers are pretty good at it nowadays. Ex-military. Yeah. Fess up to how you feel. Why not? Nothing to be ashamed of.
1: Your beautiful young daughters. <laughs> mm. Isabel and Willow. Mm. They turn to you and they say, Dad, what what um what advice would you give me on living a a full content, happy life? Oh,
0: I'd rather they just ask me for money. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would say
1: um I've got a beautiful picture here that I found. Oh, that is them. On the internet. Bless them. That's after doing some show or other.
0: Yeah. That is, them. I would say, well, they already are, in a way. They make wise decisions. They're clever. Willow had got into the younger. She'd got into a couple of good universities to do psychology. She loved it. She's interested in it. She's bright. They both are. Um, But she'd got a bit quiet about it. We said, what's up? She said, well, I'll do the psychology. But we know the only thing I've really been passionate about is horses and matters equestrian. And I don't want to get five years from now and think, oh, I could have done it. I said, no, you're absolutely right. And if there's one piece of luck you need to take advantage of, it's that I'm not... I can afford to look after you for a bit longer. So if you want to go and explore it and then in five years' time you'll be able to say, yeah, I did it or I did it and failed, that's better than not. So they're, they're already thinking quite wisely about their futures.
1: What does that, gr- that picture mean to you in terms of the people in it?
0: Um they're the most important people in my world but I've been taken away I've taken myself away from them too much over the years in order to support them but actually the support they needed sometimes was me being there and that's the hardest thing and I can't undo that and there's me saying I have no regrets Um, I (sighs) regrets are a funny I don't feel it as a real pain like I wish I could go back and change it because I know I can't So I simply don't feel it in that way. But I do wish I'd found a way of being there with and for them more, just as me, rather than as me being away in a jungle or on a glacier, earning lots of money and sending it home. And Mindy. Yeah, I include Mindy in that. They all three shout at me when I go home. (laughs) Yeah. But they're the reason, you know, they're the reason I do it and that
1: is the truth you've been through a lot with Mindy mm. a lot well, she's been through a lot with me poor thing we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest asks a question for the next guest not mm. knowing who they're leaving it for the question that's been left for you is yeah. what is the single greatest piece of advice that you have ever been given
0: oh um single greatest piece of advice I've ever been given Ah. Uh, and I've known some really wise people. Tim Jackson, who was my boss at Renault, we lost him last year. Absolutely tremendous man, and he he would have given me lots of advice because he was. I mean, it was to, it was to Tim Jackson actually that I'd I'd broken out of radio because I was starving to death, and realised I was never going to get to make motoring TV shows, based. In a bedsit somewhere in the north. I needed to get down to where the work was. So I got a job at Renner UK in the press office, and my boss there was Tim Jackson, who was the PR director and just the loveliest man. He only gave me the job because during the interview he'd been, he'd realised I was wearing a pair of shoes that had buckles and laces. And he'd drawn them throughout the interview. <laughs> he said to his secretary, look at that, I think we're giving the job. He told me to 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 follow it it sounds really cheesy and I don't want I don't want to dress it up as follow my heart. But I knew, I resigned twice because I got the job for a bit of TV work. Uh, So I actually did, I filmed the review of my company car, sent off to Pete Baker, and he said, yeah, okay, well, I can't promise you a lot of work, but I'll give you some. So I had to leave Renault. So I went back to Tim and said, Tim, I'm going. And tears in my eyes when I said it, we were both heartbroken because I really enjoyed working with him. And in fact, I went back in end of that week and said, no, I can't go, I'm staying. But then I went back in on the Monday and said, "No, I am going." And he absolutely said, no, "You've got to go. That you have to follow it while you can." And I think that applies to everything and anything, because you won't always be able to. And maybe that's, maybe that that's what it distills down to. If you're thinking, "Should I do this?" Well, can you do at this? And might there come a time when you can't? In which case, you should. And that's sort of what came out of have what I had with that quite teary conversation over an egg sandwich
1: one morning with Tim Jackson <laughs> 20 odd years ago. Richard, thank you so much. It's thank an honour to meet you um, a pleasure. as someone I've watched since I was here. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> thank you. No, but it's, you're, inc- you're incre- incredible for so many reasons, not least because because of your success and everything, but really you're, you're a remarkable communicator, Some, someone I've really learned a lot from in that Ooh. department, communication, telling stories and keeping someone engaged through vivid language and and your sort of tonal expression. It's really remarkable. And you've lived a life which is incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much for the inspiration. It means a, a huge honor to meet you today and to have the opportunity to have this conversation for you. I was tremendously excited and you've over-delivered and then some in terms of everything I was hoping this conversation could be. So thank you.
0: Thank you for your kind words and I enjoyed it and I look forward to seeing the next one. Thank you.